There are some amazing and colorful characters in the Bible. Perhaps none with a greater colorful character than that of Elijah in the Old Testament. I mentioned to you last Sunday morning that we were going to have a few lessons directed toward the life and times of Elijah and Elisha, those two great of the preaching prophets as in contrast to the writing prophets like Isaiah through Malachi. I think we need to spend a little bit of time to appreciate some of the things that they said in order for us to orient our minds toward what we want to study today, I want to begin by asking a few questions. Is one religion as good as another? For instance, is the religion of Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, or a number of other religions, are they the same as Christianity? Does it really matter? Does it matter what one believes as long as he is sincere? You know, if you have a man, for instance, who might be in a southeastern uh, Asian country like Thailand or Vietnam who <coughs> believes in Buddhism, as long as he's sincere in that belief, does that make it all right and acceptable to God? Now we get a little more direct. Is it wrong to call out another religion? And point out where they are wrong. Would it be appropriate to say that Islam is not a peaceful religion. But is one that is full of hatred. And desires to inflict harm on others. If they are not willing to convert to Islam. Is it wrong to put people on the spot. About their choices. And I realize that many of you may begin to say. This is not comfortable. When Elijah stood on the top of Mount Carmel and he told the children of Israel, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If Baal is God, follow him. But if the Lord is God, follow him. There's a challenge that is before us. And so this morning we're going to talk about lesson number two, Elijah conflict and a contest. And you can go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18, and we're going to begin our study there. In order to give you a little bit of background, we're going to talk about the conflict. It appears that the conflict is between Ahab and Elijah, but in reality, that's not with whom the conflict exists. It is between God and his people Israel. That's where the conflict lies. Second of all, we want to look at the contest that Elijah proposed and then how that contest turned out. Finally, for us, choices. There were choices made then and there are going to be choices made by us today and we want to make the right ones. Let's begin, first of all, and talk about the conflict. If you'll remember, we learned last week that Elijah prayed and it did not rain for three and a half years. We read in James chapter 5 verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain for on the land for three years and six months. 
And he prayed again, and the heaven gave its rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Luke's account brings another point into bear. He says, and there was a great famine throughout the land. Now, when we realize Elijah's prayer was according to the will of God, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, John writes. It's important to realize that what Elijah was doing was praying for God to do what God intended to do, and that was to punish Israel. But he also prayed for their relief. Don't look at this chapter and walk away with this idea that somehow Elijah was a hard-hearted and unconcerned individual. That wasn't him. Elijah was a man who was very passionate, but he also prayed for the relief of this people as well. You see, this famine, this drought was brought about to bring correction. We learn in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. God did not hate Israel. God loved Israel. But God wanted Israel to change. You see, the truth is, is there was a great conflict between God and his people. When Micah wrote in chapter 6 and verse 2, he says, The Lord has complained against his people, and he will contend with Israel. When God is unhappy with his people, God punishes his people because he wants them to change. And so he brought about a drought which resulted in a famine. And God sends droughts. In the book of Haggai, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he says, The heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I have called for a drought on the land and on the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, and on whatever the ground brings forth. On men, livestock, and all the labor of your hands. You see, God would say, I want a drought. That drought is to teach a lesson. God likewise sends famines. Yes, people starve due to their own choices. In 2 Samuel chapter 21, verse 1, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. And year after year, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. You see, there had been a, a treaty made with the Gibeonites, and Saul didn't live up to it. How bad can those famines be? Well, there's one described in 2 Kings chapter 6, and it says, And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed it was besieged until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. You say, well, man, I'd never eat a donkey's head. You get hungry enough, you would. If a drought came and you couldn't get anything else. But here they pay 80 shekels of silver for a donkey's head and one-fourth of cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Now you might think, well, they're not eating the dove droppings. That's the fuel. That's what they cook with. But the truth is, famines can be awful. There was one prescribed in Amos chapter 8 and verse 11, a famine for the hearing of the words of the Lord. You see, sometimes... There needs to be a great loss to bring people to their knees. I will tell you, 
You go back and reflect on just about 20 years ago, on 9-11-2001, our country suffered a great humiliation by those of another nation and another religion. What happened in our country? Right afterwards, pews started filling everywhere. People saw themselves needing God. What happens when man gets things going in a very peaceful, calm way? Well, then, right now, we have people who are very prosperous. They have so many things to do on the Lord's Day. They're out playing all kinds of games. They're going to all sorts of entertainment. The Lord's not important to them. Will God bring us to our knees again? I don't know, but I know one thing. Only when people feel the need for God do they really understand. But you see, in the conflict, Elijah was to present himself to Ahab. God told him to, chapter 18 in verse 1. But by the time you get to verses 17 and 18, there is the face-to-face meeting of Ahab and Elijah And it happened when Ahab saw Elijah that Ahab said to him, Is that you, O you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and that you've forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. You see, when you're trying to decide in the conflict which one is at fault and Ahab is looking at Elijah and saying, Elijah, it's your fault. You prayed for this. You got this. You are the troubler of Israel. And Elijah said, no, no, no. He said, look at you, Ahab. You have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. You have followed the Baals. You have departed from the living God. It wasn't. As if Ahab had just simply said, well, I think I'll I'll experiment here. No, because of his wife Jezebel, the prophets of the Lord had been replaced by 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Now, somebody says, well, I don't know what Asherah is. You can read in 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 7, He says he even set a carved image of Asherah that he had made in the house of which the Lord had built. You see, an Asherah was a carved image. You see it again in 2 Chronicles 15 and verse 16 where he talks about the queen mother had made an obscene image of Asherah. She was the consort of Baal. And she was pictured as this female goddess and often would be a carved image. You see, that had replaced the worship of God. So now, here you have Elijah. He is in the middle of this conflict. You have on the one side Ahab, Jezebel, all the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Asherah. On the other side, you have Elijah. And you come to verses 18 or 19 and through verse 21. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered all the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, 
how long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. The truth is, people don't know what to do. They're just following whoever the leader is. And if the leader says, okay, we're going to worship Baal, they're going to worship Baal. They have the history. In fact, their name goes back to Israel, the worship of God. What are they going to do? The people are not going to answer. They don't know. They're gathering on the top of Mount Carmel. I thought about showing you a photograph of Mount Carmel. I will tell you, it's the highest peak in that area. You can get on top of Mount Carmel and you can look down and see the whole beautiful Jezreel Valley. But there's a reason for this. You go to chapter 18 and verse 30 and you look, it says, So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. I think I've got the picture now. What is Elijah trying to do? He's trying to restore the worship of the true God on an altar which was there that had been torn down. He's repairing it. He's rebuilding it. He's restoring it. Well, that tells you a lot about this contest. This contest is, are we going to follow Baal or are we going to go back and restore, repair, and rebuild ourselves in the service of God. So there's a proposal in verses 22 through 24, an interesting way that uh, Elijah does this. He said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore let uh, them give us two bulls, And let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull, lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord God, who answers by fire, he is God. Now the people are ready to talk now. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now we need to make a choice. And we've got a contest and we can find out which one is true. Well, I'll tell you, the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, failed miserably. When you and I read in verses 26 through 29, you can see what all they do. It says... So they took the bull which was given them, they prepared it, called upon the name of Baal from the morning even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. They leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is meditating Or he is busy, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as was their custom, with knives and lances till the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied unto the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. 
No one paid attention. I can tell you, you can visualize. Here's this altar they built, and what are they doing? They're just running around it, cutting themselves, screaming, hollering. And no answer. Then comes Elijah with his part of the contest. But he makes his part even more difficult. Look with me at verses 32 through 35. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, which he had made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold two seas of seed. And he put the wood in the order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood and said, Fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. And they said, then he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So that the water ran all around the altar and he filled the trench with water. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. I want you to visualize that. I, I've been nearby when lightning has struck. I can tell you, it's a fearful situation. In fact, it wasn't too many years ago that I'd come out in front of the building. Lightning struck and Brother Ronnie Prince was right next to the tree. I was worried about him. Blow bark halfway across the parking lot. I mean, it was loud and blinding. Fire came down and consumed that altar, consumed the wood, consumed the stones, consumed the dust and the water in the trench. You know what happened? There's no doubt who won the contest. Verse 39 says, Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. I imagine they said it a few more times after that as well. Who won the contest? No question about it. But there's consequences for the losers. You have to step back and say, okay, now, if the Lord is God, what about the Baals? They're not God. And so Elijah commands in verse 40, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. 450 prophets. So I say, boy, he's mean. Elijah was taking vengeance. Oh, no, he was doing what God had prescribed. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. He said, but a prophet presumes to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Oh. The death of those prophets of Baal was because they were promoting a false religion. Now, with a few minutes left, let's talk about some choices. We all make choices in life. Some of them are inconsequential. You may choose to style your hair in one way or another. You may choose to color it. You may choose to cut it all off. 
Some of us may think some looks better than other, but that really doesn't matter in the long consequence of things. You may choose to drive a certain kind of vehicle. That's fine. You want to drive a car. You want to drive a truck. You may think one's better than the other, but that's really inconsequential. But there are some things about which you better not be wrong. There are some things that you cannot get away with. Do you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 26 and 27, Moses had led the children of Israel right there to the entrance of the promised land. And he said, Behold, I set before you this day blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord, which your God, I command you today. You know what's going to follow that? Curses if you don't. I would like for you to see for just a moment, just touching the basis of going through the biblical picture of what God will and will not accept. You can go to the Old Testament passage of Hosea chapter 5 verse 11 where Hosea says Ephraim is oppressed and is broken in judgment because he willingly walked by a human precept. Older translations say a man's command. They're willing to follow what man says to do. What if I design my own religion and I do it the way I want to do it? That's not acceptable to God. Or you can go to Matthew 15 verse 9 and he says, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Even if I am worshiping the right God, but I am doing it according to the commandments of men, then I am not acceptable to God. In Romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 3, Paul was reflecting upon his Jewish brethren, and how he began to preach Christ and had tried to teach them the truth. And he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves to the righteousness of God. Someone would say, well, they did so ignorantly. Yes, but they didn't do so innocently. Now you think about that for just a moment. They did so ignorantly, but not innocently. Because to reject God's commands has one in conflict with God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 16, Paul's writing to a city and to a church that's in a very pagan place. There's a lot of worship of false gods, worship of idols. And he tells them, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness, and what accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, somewhere along the line, we have to say, what is right? What is true? And follow the truth. Number two. Standing against error is right. 
Oh, but I thought the world we live in today says, oh, don't ever criticize anything anybody else believes. Oh, you can't criticize a person if they want to believe this about sexuality, where the person wants to be a homosexual or transgender or what. Oh, you can't speak out against that. Oh, but we've got to. We've got to. Galatians 2 verse 5, Paul said, To whom we did not yield submission for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue in you. We can't give up and we can't give in. 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. He would write them in the book of Ephesians in chapter 5 and verse 11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. A third thing that we have to realize about choices, you don't always follow the multitude. Oh, I could spend a lot of time talking about Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, about entering at the narrow gate, for broad is the way, and uh, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many are going to go in at it. For narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Oh, we've got this idea somewhere in our minds that if the majority is accepting it, it's got to be right. Ahab had decided that he, along with Jezebel, was going to make Baal worship the dominant, the popular religion in Israel. But you know, sometimes, if we're not careful, we'll get the wrong idea to think we are alone in this by ourselves. In fact, you can see that reflected in what Elijah says in chapter 18, verse 22. I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, and but the Baal's prophets are 450. Just me by myself. Chapter 19 and verse 10. So he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left. Lord, it's just me. I, I'm the only one trying to do what's right. Well, he's forgotten some folks. The very man that Ahab had sent to find Ahab's name was Obadiah. But Obadiah was a good man. Obadiah was a man who said, you know, when Jezebel says, kill all those good prophets, chapter 18, verse 4, for so it was when Jezebel massacred the prophets of the Lord that Obadiah had taken 100 prophets and hidden them, 50 to a cave, and had fed them with bread and water. Not only do you have Obadiah, but you've got a hundred other prophets who have been faithful to the Lord as well. Be careful to not think that here I am, I alone am standing against the Lord. There's a lot of other good people trying to do what's right as well. In fact, when you get to chapter 19, verse 18, part of what we will study next week, Lord willing, yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel... All whose knees who have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that's not kissed him. Elijah, you've, you're mistaken. There are other people there who are wanting to serve the Lord and do what is right. I love the way that it's expressed in chapter 6, verse 16, to the servant of Elisha. He's worried, scared to death. 
And he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Don't fear. If God's on our side, it does not matter who's on the other side. That's well illustrated in the life of Elijah. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. First Kings chapter 8, verse 60. That all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. I have no problem standing before you this morning telling you that there is just one God. In fact, the Bible is very plain about that. In Ephesians chapter 4, there's one body and one spirit as you were called and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all, through all, and in you all. And I have no problem standing before you to tell you that you ought to make the right choice to serve Him and let your life follow what He says to do. When Joshua came to the end of his life. He had led the children of Israel into the promised land, and now there had to be a choice made. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil for you to serve the Lord, choose you for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the God your father served on the other side of the river or the God of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But it's for me and my house. We will serve the Lord. The decision has to be made on the part of every one of us. Who are you going to serve? If you want to become a child of God this morning... Believe in Jesus Christ, repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him. And as the people who came believing, repenting, and confessing were told, and now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts 22, verse 16. Well, if you're a child of God and you've been dabbling with the world, you've been following sinful pathways, come back home. God's looking for you. He wants you to come home. We're going to sing, Who at the door is standing? If you need to respond, please come as together we stand and sing.